name is Karen Bird. I'm one of the members of our elder board here at North Park, and I'm really glad to be with you this morning digging into God's word together. In this short sermon series, we're tracing the biblical theme of God's salvation of his people through the waters. Last week, Pastor Joel spoke from Exodus 14, where God saves his people out of slavery through the waters of the Red Sea. And today, in Isaiah 43, we're going to look at God's continued care for Israel. Just as he saved his people out of Egypt, he continues to offer salvation to the people he loves. And next week, as we come to Baptism Sunday, we'll hear about how Jesus is the one who takes us through the deep waters from death to life. So would you bow with me in prayer as we begin? Lord Jesus, we are so glad to be here together today and in your presence. We ask, O oh God, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear that which you have for us today, for your glory and your honor. Amen. Well, since we're just touching down in Isaiah today, I thought it would be helpful to take a bit of time to just generally familiarize ourselves with the book of Isaiah before we narrow in on chapter 43. I find that scripture it always means so much more when we gain some insight into its context. And I don't know about you, but I've always had a bit of a hard time with the book of Isaiah. It's huge, for starters. It's 66 chapters, and it's complex. It's filled with poetic prophecy and a lot of pronouncements of God's wrath and judgment, which can sometimes feel more than a bit disillusioning. But it's good to press in because the book of Isaiah is important. Isaiah's name means salvation is of the Lord. And his messages are hugely influential to New Testament writers. He gets quoted twice as often as any of the other major prophets and more than all of the minor prophets combined. Isaiah, like other Old Testament prophets, he served as a kind of ambassador. He was entrusted to pass on the messages of our supernatural heaven-residing God to natural earth-residing people. Prophets reminded the nation of Israel of their role as God's people and exhorted them to live it out. You might remember we were explained Israel's role last week. God chose Abraham and his descendants, this nation of Israel, to know God and to be a people who would embody God's ways and mediate his goodness to the whole world. That this wasn't a case of favoritism, it was actually a huge responsibility of extending their blessing for the sake of others. Prophets kept reminding Israel of this identity and responsibility. And a prophet's role wasn't easy. If you were a high school student at this time in history and wondering which career path to take, like my kids happen to be, you probably wouldn't want to be called by God to be a prophet. They did get to show up in a throne room every now and again and advise kings, but it was not a glamorous job, and they were incredibly underappreciated. You see, although the people of Israel may have needed to hear God's messages to them, they didn't want to hear them. This was because, just like all humans, Israel wasn't particularly great at staying on point. They tended to get their role wrong a lot of the time, and so God was often rebuking them and reprimanding them through the prophets. And nobody likes getting told off, right? Do any of you, like me, find that correction can be hard to take? 
Maybe you've had some recently from a coworker or a boss or a spouse or a parent. If you find correction hard to take, you're not alone. The nation of Israel didn't like it either and certainly didn't appreciate it coming from Isaiah. You might remember that persecuting prophets, it was a pretty common occurrence, and unfortunately, Isaiah was no exception. He actually met a fairly nasty uh, end to his life. It didn't end very well for Isaiah. But last week, we discovered that God did something incredibly amazing, didn't he? God set the stage telling his paradigm story of salvation. His beloved were enslaved by Pharaoh, and he brought them from slavery to freedom, from death to life through those deep waters of the Red Sea. And this was a major foundational event that revealed God's character and his glory and foreshadowed a greater salvation to come. It revealed that he is a God who wants to bless the whole world, that he wants to rescue everyone from the deep waters, that he deeply desires to bring everyone from death to life, and that he can actually do it. And now, here we are in Isaiah, this expansive book of prophecy focused on God's salvation. We find ourselves listening into God's words to the same people group as in Exodus, but now we're in a different time period. They find themselves in a new set of challenging circumstances, but in the hands of the same saving God. And here, I'm gonna take a really early and a really quick tangent for a second. I know that there are some of you here who are a bit perplexed by the scope of God's big story, the length of time and the amount of individuals that pass as God writes it. I mean, Exodus was a huge salvation event and a foreshadow of, of better things to come. But then we turn the pages of scripture and we discover rather quickly that death continued, right? A lot of it for a long time. 700 years pass from Exodus to Isaiah, and then another 700 years pass from Isaiah to Jesus. That's a lot of people in the in-between waiting for God's salvation, his story, to be unveiled. Well, if you're one of those people that is wrestling with that even a little bit, 2 Peter 3.8 says this. He says, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think, he is being patient for your sake. And I don't know if that conjures up more questions than answers for you, but that's something to think about as you wrestle through those questions. And another mysterious piece to the puzzle is that we're still in the story as we wait for God's return. But that's the end of this little tangent. We're gonna jump back into Isaiah 43, starting at verse one, and it says, but now this is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. And these two simple words start this passage, but now. And for all the English majors out there, this is our grammatical cue. These two simple words tell us something's changed here. Something was being talked about and now it's gonna be contrasted by something new. And if you get the chance to read the whole book of Isaiah, you're gonna notice that chapter 43 really is a significant contrast to much of the preceding chapters. 
So what's going on that's leading up to a but now? Well, a lot of the preceding chapters of Isaiah are about God's judgment and wrath and a deep sense of frustration about Israel's failure. Israel was failing because they had stopped trusting God. They had stopped following his way. And this doesn't come as a great surprise after what we've learned through our recent study of Genesis, does it? Humanity certainly seems to have a strong tendency to turn away from trusting God and turn inwards in self-dependence. Specifically in the book of Isaiah, we see that Israel's turn from trusting God was causing two major issues. The first was that the major political superpowers, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, they were closing in on Israel, and they had to decide whether God would save them or whether they would develop their their own strategies and save themselves. And the problem was they kept reaching for these self-salvation strategies. They wanted to save themselves. Specifically, they were relying on military alliances, idols that they had made, which they hoped would do the job. And God was not happy about this. But the second issue was more subversive. Lack of trust in God resulted in choosing to live in ways that were contrary to the way of God, which also shouldn't surprise us, right? Because trust and obedience are two sides of the same coin. Trust isn't just about intellectual assent to an idea up here. Trust proves itself by obedience out here. And Israel was disobeying God's ways and becoming a self-serving people who were taking advantage of the poor, the oppressed, the orphaned, and the widowed, and leaving them uncared for. And these two issues were extra significant and extra disappointing in Israel's case because of their special identity and mission to show the world how blessed and beautiful it was to live according to God's way, living in this state of dependence and trust in God. So with these two major issues going on, God didn't care that they showed up to worship services and did all those religious-y things that they were so proud of, their sacrifices and praying and fasting. It was obvious they didn't actually trust him. It was just lip service. And this resulted in Isaiah with a lot of correction and judgment in these preceding 42 chapters. And that's what's leading up to the but now, and here we know we're going to get a glimpse into something new. But now this is what the Lord says, Yahweh, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. So the Lord, Yahweh, the one who is and was and always will be, he's beckoning them back. Remember the beginning He created you, he who formed you. Remember the creation, this intentionality, the very good design that they were intended for. And he encourages them, don't be afraid of the current political situations you're in. Don't be afraid of the threat of slavery and the difficulties that lie ahead. Don't even be afraid of the previous 42 chapters of warning and judgment. It might feel for you like the Red Sea is in front of you and the armies of Pharaoh are behind you and you're terrified but do not fear, he says. Now it's interesting here to see that he doesn't tell them not to fear because he's going to take all these difficulties away. That would be nice, but that's not what he says. His reason to not be afraid is by knowing whose they are. 
I have redeemed you, he says. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And the word redeemed has become a bit of an assumed Christianese term, so I want to flesh it out uh, for a minute here. Being a redeemer in ancient Israelite culture was actually part of their law. A redeemer or a kinsman redeemer, if you're familiar with the story of Ruth and Boaz, was an individual who was the most closely connected living relative, the next of kin, most often a brother or maybe an uncle or a cousin. And the redeemer was responsible for three things, to buy back property that had been sold outside of the family and continue the family line, to buy back any members of the family who had sold themselves into slavery, because that was a bit of a thing, and to avenge the blood of a murdered relative. God here refers to himself as Israel's kinsman redeemer. In verse 1 here, he was promising to restore who they were and what they had. He was promising to buy back this rebellious nation from selling themselves to the local rising empires, to buy back their lost land and restore their freedom and provide the means for them to keep their identity going. I have redeemed you, he says. Essentially, he's saying, I am Yahweh, supreme God of all, but I am your nearest brother. Isn't that amazing? I think our familiarity with this term makes us walk past this deep significance. This declaration of family identity with God as a kinsman redeemer would have been so radically different from any other religious, idol-worshipping, cultural understanding. When you think about Zeus or Baal or Molech, these gods had to be appeased. But Yahweh says, you share my name. You are my family. You are mine. As a kinsman redeemer, he promises to provide the means for his family to get out of exile, out of chaos, out of this decreation, this distortion of their broken world. And here is where we find the reference to Israel's salvation through the water. Verse 2 says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Isaiah is making reference here to God's salvation of his people through these Red Sea Exodus waters like we've talked about. This salvation from death to life, from the darkest terror to hope. And in Exodus, the nation of Israel was trapped between the the deep water of the Red Sea and the hordes of the Egyptian army. And here in Isaiah, the nation of Israel finds itself trapped both by the political superpowers closing in on them and from a degrading society caused by their own disobedience. In Israel's rescue from Egypt, God didn't walk them around the sea or run it dry. He took them right through it. Those tall walls of water held fast on each side. And similarly here, He's not planning to take the waters or the fires away. The discipline and difficulty and pain, it's not going to magically vanish. But he promises that he'll be with them as they go through it. I will be with you, he says. Go ahead and enter into it. The water will not sweep over you. I will be with you. Have you ever been alone and afraid? Doesn't it make a huge difference when you just simply know you're not all by yourself? 
My kids would never play in the big, dark, scary basement on their own, but if they had somebody alongside them, they were completely fine. Don't we long to know that we're not alone? And God says here to the people he loves, I'm here, I will be with you. In verses three and four, he goes on to say, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. And there's something here that I don't want us to rush past. <clears throat> he says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. <clears throat> and here's a shout out to any of you who might be a little bit romantic. Notice this, in verse one he says, you are mine. And here he says, I am yours. Isn't that beautiful? This is an amazing expression of reciprocity. It's relationship. I am yours and you are mine. This is what his covenant was all about. As Israel committed itself to God, God was incredibly giving himself to Israel. This was God's invitation to true fellowship, true community, true relationship, flowing out of his own Trinitarian nature, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in a self-giving relationship with one another, and his people are welcomed into this fellowship. And it's this kind of relationship that leads to this intimacy of verse four. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. As I was reading this this week, it almost made me blush, it's so intimate. These are words to a bride. They're Yahweh's words to the people that he loves. Despite their frustrating rebellion from him, their lack of trust in his parameters for living, Despite the fact that they turned to idols and empires for their identity and their hope when they had been invited to turn to him, these are God's people and he actually loves them. He loves them so much that he has Isaiah spend 50 years of his life calling them back to trust. He lives, loves them so much that he uses any means he can to get their attention and will do whatever it takes to buy them back. They are so treasured that no cost is too high to pay. And in this, ver uh, this verse, it says, Egypt, Kush, Seba, no ransom is too high. Theologian Klaus Westermann says it this way. He says, a tiny, miserable, and insignificant band of uprooted men and women are assured that they, precisely they are the people to whom God has turned in love. They, just as they are, dear and precious in his sight. And think who says this? The Lord of all powers and authorities, of the whole of history, and of all creation. And can I pause here for a minute and tell you that this is how God thinks about you. God's love for Israel wasn't exclusive. They weren't the privileged few. The nation of Israel was the example of what God intends for and has extended to all humanity. And that's you, and that's me. God loves you. You are precious to him. He invites you into the perfect, self-giving, communal love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
In verses 5 to 7, it goes on to say this. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And here is such a beautiful vision of a homecoming. Israel's returning to that place of freedom and life that God had initially intended and provided for them. And we thrive there, don't we? We thrive in that sense of belonging, that sense of finding home. And here, this returning is not something that Israel has to do. It's a redeemed homecoming that is accomplished completely by God. Simply because they belong to him and he loves them, he will bring, he will gather, he will command. The return to a place of freedom and life happens by God's resolve. His great love, his absolute provision, his amazing grace. And if the nation of Israel was the example of what God intends for and has extended to all humanity, then we too are invited into this kind of homecoming, knowing that this redeeming, this salvation through the deep waters is a gift for us. In verses 8 to 13, we go on to see the why of everything that's going on here. We've been noticing what they're being saved from and how, and here they're reminded again what they're saved for. Verses 10 to 12 say, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know me and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Israel's whole purpose as a people was to know God so that they could be God's witnesses to reveal the one true God and mediate his blessings to the world. And they were so bad at it. And honestly, it's kind of weird that he chooses these misfits, isn't it? Don't we prefer to pick people with good reputations to represent us when it counts? If you were on the stand before a judge, who would you want to be your witness, your representative? Well, here, with great delight, God says, rebellious, forgetful, idolatrous Israel, that's who I pick. And ancient Israel isn't unique in its rebellion, forgetfulness, and idolatry, is it? We are just like them. We are people who struggle too much. We are too weak. We are too inconsistent to truly follow God. But when we see that God chooses exactly this kind of people to set apart, to pursue, to redeem, to love, we see that we're exactly the kind of people that God is after. He wants to redeem us too. And he extends this redeeming, this deep, intimate, identity-sharing love to us. In verses 10 to 13 here, Israel is reminded of who God is so that they can remember who they really are and become the witnesses that they were meant to be. 
They're reminded here that their identity comes from outside of themselves. Their identity comes from God's nature. Their identity comes from God's provision. They're made by God, bought back from slavery by God, saved through the waters from death to life by God, loved deeply by God. He says, I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. He's saying, who you really are is found in knowing who I am, believing me, understanding me. And when you get that right, you'll be the kind of witnesses that will bless the whole world. Like Israel, I think we look for our identity in lots of things other than the great God who deeply loves us. We want to establish our own autonomy, our significance, our individuality. We try to discover our identity by looking inwards, but God invites us to ground our identity in who he is. And thankfully, God's big story continued to unveil so much more of his nature and his character for us through the person of Jesus Christ. Because these stories kept pointing forward to the salvation coming in Jesus. It wasn't just about the waters of the Red Sea in Exodus or the rescue from disobedience and local superpowers in Isaiah. God was doing these specific things, yes, and he was using them to point forwards to this greater salvation through the waters to come. As we'll hear more about next week, Jesus, this God-made flesh, came to submerge himself into the waters of death in order to defeat it and set things right. And when this happened, it wasn't just for Israel. It was for all of humanity. In fact, anyone who puts their faith in the saving work of Jesus becomes adopted into God's family, is invited to take on the identity and responsibility of knowing God and embodying God's ways and mediating his blessing to the world, just like Israel, becoming the living proof that Yahweh is the king. And I pause here because I don't want to say that lightly. Yahweh is the king. As I studied Isaiah these last few weeks, I've been struck by a new and very distinct sense of humility before the greatness of God. In a world that exalts the individual and tells me so many wonderful things about how good I am, reading Isaiah had me stopped in my tracks with a vision of Yahweh's greatness and a true realization that I am a limited created being in need of others and my creator. It's in humbleness before a loving God that I realize I actually need saving, that God's very good world became broken and distorted, and I can't fix myself, that I need a savior to take me through deep waters. We try to convince ourselves that we're good enough, that we're strong enough, that our failures have an excuse, but God is saying, you aren't good enough, but I love you anyway. Don't trust yourself, he says. Trust me. In my familiarity with these Bible stories and my religious routines, I don't want to lose this deep sense of humble reverence for the greatness of God. And this doesn't water down the intimacy of his love. It actually emphasizes that his deep love is so much greater than I realize. As we close this morning, I just want to ask you, what do you need to trust God for today? 
If trust and obedience are two sides of the same coin, what would trusting God look like in your week ahead? And what would it look like to return to God's invitation to us in the garden to live in an ongoing state of trust and dependence in the God who loves you so deeply? I invite you to consider these questions. Think about them. Talk about them with a friend. Talk about them in your small group. Talk to God about them. And wherever you find yourselves at, let me encourage you to take one step of trust closer to the God who loves you so dearly. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled by your greatness and humbled by your love. We give you thanks for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are the king. Help us, by your spirit, to continue to put our trust in you day by day. For your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.